3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM, and it is just on 7 o'clock. Hi, Ayan. Hey, how are you, Priya? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. It's great to be back on breakfast. Well, just for today. Just for today. Yeah. Uh, you may recognize Ayan from Diaspora Blues if you have been listening. Uh, highly encourage you to tune in. Uh, when can people tune into Diaspora Blues, by the way? Oh, thank you for the little promo. First of all, we love that. So you can tune in on Mondays at 2.30. It's a half an hour show. And we're also on Radio Skid Row. So if anyone listens to Thursday Breakfast from another state, tune into Radio Skid Row Tuesdays at 3.30 where you can hear us repeated. So Incredible. Well, I love that you're getting more coverage because it is a fantastic show. Um, and speaking of fantastic shows, uh, I might just jump into what we've got on for today. So we have, um, we've got a packed show as usual. Um, but hopefully bring you some of the really uh, important news content over the last week or so and things to look out for. So first of all, uh, Michaela Sahar joined Rosie earlier in the week to discuss her essay, COVID Among the Palestinians, which was published in Arena Quarterly Number 5. Michaela is a Melbourne-based writer, poet, and researcher. After that, uh, we're going to hear a conversation that Carly had earlier this week with Chris Sharinga from the Gungra Environment Center, or GECCO. And Chris joins us to give us an update about Camp Erinandra, which is a blockade halting forest logging in East Gippsland. You may remember that Chris Sharinga has joined us to update us um, update us about this blockade previously. And we've also spoken to Isaac Carne, who is uh, currently occupying a tree sit um, in that area as well. After that, I speak with Bianca Hennessy, who's a unionist working with casualized, unemployed and precarious university workers in so-called Australia, or Kapow for short. And Bianca is going to discuss Kapow's work and upcoming summit this weekend from April 9th to 10th, which brings together casual, unemployed and precarious workers in the university sector. Bianca's a casual academic and PhD candidate at the Australian National University as well. After that, I'm going to speak to Irene Salidis Noyce, who's the secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, and who's going to speak to us about recent extensions to the transitional measures for Victorian renters affected by COVID-19, as well as changes to rental property standards, which have apparently led to a boom in um, landlords trying to sell their properties rather than get them up to code. And finally, we're going to hear uh, from Lawrence, who's a member of Anakbayan Melbourne, who read out a statement from Bahaghari, which is an anti-imperialist Filipino LGBTQ plus organization at the rally calling for justice for Melody Paul and Bruno on Tuesday, 6th April. 
Um, on that day, Anakbaya in Melbourne, Gabriela and Migrante held a rally and vigil calling for justice for Melody Polan Bruno, who's a 25-year-old Filipina trans woman who died in 2019 in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, at the hands of a member of the Royal Australian Air Force. So that's what we've got on for today. Um, we hope you stick with us. But again, if you do not, um, if you're not able to hear the whole show or you want to listen back to anything, you can catch us uh, later. Uh, we'll podcast this on www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. So before we jump into headlines today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m., um, I'm oh, sorry, before we jump into the content that we've got, I will um, get some headlines to you. So first up, draft legislation on the National Disability Insurance Scheme has been leaked. So the leaked copy of proposed changes to the NDIS Act signal plans for a consolidation of power within the scheme to a single person, the federal NDIS minister. The Saturday paper reported that the Commonwealth Minister would be given unilateral power to rule on general supports that will be provided under the scheme and to dictate the criteria for determining the total amount of funding allocated for the purposes of an NDIS plan. Further proposals include a debt recovery power, which could see the NDIS take back money used by individuals from NDIS funding if individuals spend money on services or support which should have been funded by state or territory governments. Yesterday, the Coroner's Court of Victoria released its findings into a cluster of five drug-related deaths across Melbourne between July 2016 and January 2017. Corona Paresa Spanos has recommended the Victorian government implement a drug-checking service as a matter of urgency. In 2020, the Victorian government released two public drug alerts warning people about stimulants mixed with substances such as N-ethylpentalone. However, Victoria does not yet have a service where people can submit drugs for testing and receive rapid forensic analysis. And finally, a First Nations man at Perth's Casuarina Prison died earlier this week. This is the fifth death of an Aboriginal person in custody since the beginning of March 2020. Um, Sorry, 2021. More than 450 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have died in custody since the release of the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. This Saturday, there is a National Day of Action to Stop Black Deaths in Custody. The event in NARM is at Parliament House and starts at 1pm. Natsils are also hosting a webinar on the eve of the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. So on Monday, 12th April at 6 p.m., LaToya Rule will be in conversation with April Watson, Michaela Reynolds, and Rosemary Rowe about the Royal Commission's recommendations and the ongoing campaigns for the families of loved ones who have died in custody. 
strongly encourage everybody to turn up to that rally on Saturday and also to try and tune in to that event on Monday. Um, Every little bit of support really helps. It's been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter. Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there. You're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM. And now we're going to an interview that Rosie did earlier this week with Michaela Sahar, who joined us to discuss her essay, COVID Among the Palestinians, which was published in Arena Quarterly Number 5. Welcome, Michaela. Thank you, Rosie. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. So your article explores the ways in which Israel has been lauded around the world um, in terms of its response to COVID-19, especially in relation to its vaccine rollout. Before we go into discussing the pandemic, I was hoping to ask you about some of the history and context you write about. So uh, in your article, you use this term brand Israel, and I was wondering if you'd be able to tell listeners what you mean by this and how Israel uses public relations in order to deflect international scrutiny of its occupation. So one of the issues with presenting a Palestinian narrative um, in the context of its relations with Israel is where you start the story. And this is a story that goes back to 1948, um, the creation of the Israeli state. You could start it earlier than that too. Um, But in terms of the campaign, if you like, of Brown Israel, this is um, something that's um, got perhaps a more recent history in the 21st century. Um, And maybe I'm going to start the story about 10 years ago with the bombardment of um, Gaza in Operation Cast Lead, which was... um, an event that received a lot of international attention at the time. And it looked um, at that time as someone who's um, worked on um, Palestinian issues for for quite a long time, that international perceptions of the issue might change um, because it seemed clear that you had this captive population of what is now about 2 million people in a very small area where they have, um, according to Israel... um, an autonomous zone, but by any other framework, it clearly is not. They have no access to um, their own land borders, their own air borders, their own um, uh, sea um, borders. And um, and so it appeared um, that international opinion would, um, would start to shift um, towards the Palestinian um, case, given that context. However, in the wake of this, rather than there being some positive um, improvements around um, Israeli-Palestine or Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy, um, you had the launch of um, what is now um, often called Brand Israel, 
which was really a public relations um, campaign to counter Palestinian narrative around um, Israeli occupation, um, but also around, I guess, the history between Israel, Israel and the Palestinians. Yeah, thank you. And in the article, like um, as part of this brand Israel uh, public relations exercise, there's also um, you describe the way that Israel has tried to exclude uh, Palestine from access to international law through bodies like the UN and um, the International Criminal Court. So I was just wondering if you could speak a bit about that history and how it kind of works to maintain Israel's image. So, uh, look, again, um, there's a long history between Palestinians trying to um, mount cases through international um, legal legal courts and through international frameworks, um, including around things like the, the building of what Israel calls the separation um, or the security fence, in fact, um, and which is sometimes called by Palestinians the um, apartheid wall. Um, and in that instance, they got an opinion from the International Court of Justice, um, the Palestinians, that is, in their favour that the wall was illegal. Um, unfortunately, with international law, it does function primarily through um, uh, the ability of... Um, of more powerful states to enforce it against weaker states. So in the case of Israel-Palestinian relations, the Palestinians obviously have no nothing other than a kind of moral um, uh, moral affirmation um, in, in going through these, some of these international channels. I think with the International Criminal Court, though, it seems like um, this would have um, more um, impact than things that they've had access to in the past, like the International Court of Justice. So um, this was in the making for some time. And I should say it was in direct response um, to the various operations or aerial assaults um, unleashed by the Israeli uh, Defence Force on, on Gaza specifically. So in 2012, um, uh, the Palestinians... Um, were admitted a, a vote in the General Assembly of the United Nations um, put forward the idea um, that Palestinians would be given or the Palestinian Authority would be given um, non-state observer um, status but that one of the key rights that would attach to that would be um, that they would become a signatory to the International Court. Um, this is what um, Israel and its supporters worked uh, to move against. And in fact, in 2019, um, they finally have um, uh, been able to uh, use um, this, this uh, concession, if you like, that attached to this resolution that they would be given access to the International Criminal Court. I suppose the difficulty with international um, law for Palestinians is it, it affirms um, a lot of what... Um, they have argued for for the last 72 or so um, years and then more recently in terms of um, treatment at the hands of the IDF. Um, they have consistently um, wanted to have uh, the war crimes of Israel recognised um, against them, um, observers or missions, um, investigations, inquiries um, launched by the UN and other bodies like Human Rights Watch or um, Amnesty International have a have affirmed um, a host of issues in um, Israeli military practices in the occupied territories, especially um, 
over the last two decades, uh, for example. But I suppose this, um, with, without the capacity of enforcement, this does little to change the situation for Palestinians. Yeah, thank you. I think there were some really important points there. The fact that, you know, what um, the Palestinians are uh, trying to um, proceed with in these, using these um, international law frameworks is actually very specific um, acts of violence um, perpetrated by the Israeli state, the IDF. And, you know, while like the occupation in general is obviously hugely problematic, it's actually these really, you know, evident, self-evident human rights abuses that are going kind of completely ignored. Um, and also that, you know, that point that you made about these powerful states like the US, like Australia, supporting Israel um, and maintaining that kind of status quo within the international law framework. But I just wanted to move on now to um, the pandemic and just to to ask you, you know, many people have probably heard about the Israeli vaccine rollout and it's been really like lauded in the mainstream media but could you talk a bit about what the experience of the pandemic has been like for Palestinians in the occupied territories? Sure. Look, I guess I guess the pandemic is yet another example of an experience that the Palestinians are used to. Um, but having said that, I think um, it's maybe an opportunity at an international level for people to recognise the injustice of the situation that Palestinians find themselves in. So... Um, Earlier in the pandemic, and, you know, if you think back to a year ago, we didn't know a great deal about COVID. Um, We didn't know quite what risks it represented, but I think it became very clear very quickly that the virus had no care for class or race or indeed borders. And at the time, I think it would have seemed like it was in Israel's best interest to ensure that Palestinians had access to adequate um, care, um, much like their own population. And the reason I say that is because um, the way that occupation works in the in the West Bank particularly is, is that Israelis and Palestinians are really pressed up against each other in their daily lives because of the administration of occupation. So um, not to mention actually the settlements um, that uh, litter the West Bank as well. But to the contrary, um, there were a number of horrifying reports in which um, Israel uh, or its its forces, the state, had dismantled, um, you know, quite actually quite rudimentary treatment uh, hospitals for coronavirus patients, um, giving people no access to kind of isolation or care. Um, We're also talking about really overcrowded um, territory in the instance of both um, Palestinian areas of the West Bank, but certainly in in the Gaza Strip as well. I guess at the start uh, of this, um, there was there was a certain confusion about why um, Israel would do this. And I suppose the only way to apprehend this is that what we clearly see consistently from Israel is that there is a, um, a, a lack of care, but but in some instances at, at the expense, one would imagine, also of Israelis for Palestinian life. And, and this has to do actually with um, you know, 72 years of um, a project to um, dehumanise um, a, a group of people and also to um, insist um, that what has happened here in terms of the creation of the state has not happened um, and that Palestinians are not, in fact, the responsibility um, of the state. Now, of course, I mean, to go back to international law, um, it's well accepted that the situation in the Palestinian territories 
um, are covered by the Fourth Geneva Convention, um, which um, creates a host of obligations for the occupying power to take care um, of the population or the civilian population that it occupies. And this includes, um, in, in the current context... Um, I suppose providing those vaccines um, to Palestinians, right? Like that—that that is part of the—that is part of their responsibility as an occupying power. Well, that's right. So, very specifically, the Fourth Geneva Convention, one of the obligations relates to health crisis, including to combat the spread of contagious diseases and epidemics in cooperation with local authorities. Now. Quite clearly, and I suppose vaccinations have um, changed the game a little bit, um, but quite clearly um, Israel has uh, not only met that obligation and it it frequently does not meet its obligations under the Fourth Geneva Convention, but it has worked actively um, to prevent um, vaccinations from arriving to um, Palestinians in the the territories. And you kind of go on to close your article, I suppose... um you know, quite devastatingly talking about um, how many more Palestinians might die from this virus because of both the failure of international law frameworks and the international community to hold Israel responsible. Um, I'm just wondering if there are places that you could suggest listeners go to find out more about this um, or organisations to support who are fighting for justice for Palestinians around COVID, but I mean around the, the um, you know, occupation of their land as well. Sure. Look, very so very directly in Australia, there's the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, um, which does good work in our own local context, specifically in um, pushing pushing Parliament to uh, recognise a host of Palestinian rights or support um, international um, legal frameworks, in particular around the situation in Palestine. Um, in the context of um, uh, Palestine itself, and I suppose it depends on um, what people are interested in. There's obviously a whole lot of international health oblig- uh, health organisations um, who are trying to step in in this situation. Uh, I was reading an article this morning um, from Madison Sans Frontier, but obviously the Red Crescent has had a big role um, in the territories um, over the last 72 years. But in look, I think actually um, if people are interested, getting, getting in touch with... Um, in a, in a local context with um, with APAN, but also with their with their MPs um, to to advocate for doing better. So, for example, one issue that's come up actually out of all of this is Israel's um, vaccine diplomacy, if you like, which is um, uh, they're, they're attempting to make uh, vaccinations contingent on concessions from Palestinians um, in a political arena, which is clearly. Um, a negotiation situation of incredible duress um, for Palestinians, but also um, in an outward-facing way. They're trying to um, force acknowledgement of Jerusalem as their capital via um, offering uh, countries that are prepared to move their embassy to Jerusalem um, with a supply of vaccines. So um, I suppose uh, having an eye to our domestic way of... Um, holding this state to accountable at international law. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. So we'll we'll also share um, APAN's links on our on our program page um, after the show goes up. Thank you, really. Thank you for your time, and we'll also link to your article on Arena, so our listeners can find out more there as well. Thank you again for joining us on Thursday Breakfast. Thank you.
And that was an interview with Michaela Sahar earlier this week, uh, who joined us to discuss her essay, COVID Among the Palestinians, which was published in Arena Quarterly number five. And we'll be putting a link to that in our podcast of this uh, episode of 3CR Thursday Breakfast. So you can find that on 3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast after the show. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM, and it is just coming up to 726 in the morning. And now we're going to go to a track. This is Faithful by Man-Made Mountain, Silent J, and Lucifer. Oh 
And that was Faithful by Man-Made Mountain, Silent J, and Lucifer. And now we're going to go to an update from Chris Sheringa from the Gungara Environment Center, or GECCO, who joined Carly earlier this week to discuss Camp Arenandra, which is a blockade halting forest logging in East Gippsland. Today we're joined by Chris Sheringa from the Gungara Environment Center, also known as GECCO, to give us an update about Camp Arenandra, a blockade halting forest logging in East Gippsland. We've had Chris on the show earlier this year, as well as Izzet Khan, who occupied a tree sit earlier this year. I saw on social media that there was a bit of action over the long weekend, Chris. Um, so firstly, thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. And can you give us a bit of an update on Camp Irunandra? Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, yeah, we had a, a citizen science kind of Skillshare um, event over the weekend, which had around 30 people. And so that was really great. Um, did a few walks through through Threaten Forest and mark, and marked out some big trees. And also, yeah, the camp was visited by Senator Green Senator Lydia Thorpe, First Nations activist, um, which was really exciting and special for a lot of the folks there. So, yeah, it was an awesome weekend. Yeah, so through um, Gecko Citizen Scientists and the Environment East Gippsland and Environmental Justice Australia, there's been some pressure put on Vic Forests and the Department of Environment to protect the area home to a significant population of greater gliders. Can you tell us a little bit more about the effects of that report um, that all of those groups managed to write and then also, yeah, if there's been any prevention um, or halting of logging? Yeah, the report was really um, like a yeah, big process kind of looking at those key refuge areas and sort of identifying the main threats um, to the continued survival of the, some of the species that continue to live in those areas like the greater glider, um, forest owls like the sooty owl and powerful owl and the glossy black cockatoo. 
um, since then we we have um, we have been in um, conversations with the environment department about these key refuge areas and sort of trying to get an idea of you know what's what's next and and, and what's and what's going to be happening with these places um, and we've really just been kind of butting heads with them um, you know it's it's quite difficult a lot of the times you know. Um, these species are detected by citizen science groups and then there's sort of pressure from community groups and conservationists to and scientists um, to protect these areas. But, uh, yeah, the government are really digging their heels in um, to continue logging these forests, even though, you know, they are, they've identified as well that these areas are, are critical for threatened species survival. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty frustrating having to deal, deal with the government in this regard because they're just... Um, really uh, putting logging as, as as a priority over over the survival of these of these animals. Yeah, and which are the key politicians that you're encouraging listeners to email and call? Uh, the Premier Dan Andrews uh, and the Environment Minister Lily D'Ambrosio. She's in charge of the the Environment Department. Um, and also Marianne Thomas. She's the minister that's in charge of of Vic Forests. And also, are there some other um, citizen science weekends um, that listeners can attend or are you just encouraging people to come to the camp when they can? Yeah, I mean, um, the camp is kind of, you know, it sort of depends on, on who's around, but there's always um, there's always uh, stuff happening out there. Uh, and so doing citizen science in the area, spotlighting for greater gliders, it's a really, really great way to take to take action and just kind of get to see the forest and and be a part of the campaign. It's a really, really effective, effective strategy. So um, yeah, definitely we're always we're always keen to have people come out to camp and it's in it's it's outside the sort of illegal uh, safety zone. So it's in a legal area. You're not at risk of, of arrest, just, just camping in the area and being a part of um, citizen science stuff. So everyone's, everyone's welcome. Great. And I think you posted today on the Gungura Environment Centre um, website, you've got some blogs up that the camp's been going for nine weeks. So yeah. congratulations. That's yeah, really huge effort. Yeah, it's um, incredible. <laughs> yeah. So are there any current um, blockades or people sitting in tree sits at the moment? And is there any really imminent logging that might be occurring soon? Yeah, so right now there's a person in a tree sit stopping logging and there's also someone occupying a structure. It's called a quad pod um, that's that's over over the gate, which which is blocking access to two of the coops on on playgrounds track which is where the blockade has been in Arunandra so one of the areas was actually taken off the schedule the immediate schedule that's the one that um that the community was most concerned about uh, and now logging machines are trying to move into two other areas on the same road just down just down from from where the original protest started and so the community is really kind of mobilizing into other areas to try and prevent prevent imminent logging so yeah police have been on site this morning um and yeah there's two people basically on on the front line you know willing to be arrested because they want to see these forests protected yeah absolutely and are there any other updates that you wanted to let listeners know about um i mean it's very likely that that these people be arrested and taken down in the coming days. And so, yeah, it's really, really great to always have support um, to keep these actions going. And um, so, yeah, we can keep 
keep folks updated and you can follow us on social media. We've got updates on there and also um, uh, the Save Erinundra uh, Instagram is also a good place to get updates as well. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for giving us an update on Camp Erinundra. And, yeah, to 3CR listeners out there, definitely try and get to camp. Um, and you can always email Chris. And so you can let everybody at Camp Erinundra know that you'll be coming. Um, and otherwise, yeah, if you're based in Nam and you can't get out there, then email and call Dan Andrew's office. Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Thank you so much for having me. And that was an interview with Chris Scheringa from the Goomba Environment Centre, who was speaking with Carly about uh, the, uh, the Camp Erinandra blockade, which is halting forest logging in East Gippsland. So for more information about Camp Erinandra, you can visit Gecko's website, which is www.gecko.org.au. And the key politicians to call and email with your concerns about the forest logging are the Labor Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, the Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change, Lily D'Ambrosio, MP, and Minister for Regional Development and Minister for Agriculture, Marianne Thomas, who is also the Minister in Charge of Vic Forests. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 7.38 in the morning. And now we're going to go to a track by Squidgenini, which was released yesterday. This is Circle Line.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick and check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up. And we're still talking about revolution. And we're back on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM. And now we're going to go to an interview with Bianca Hennessy, who's a unionist working with casualized, unemployed and precarious university workers in so-called Australia, or Kapow for short. And Bianca's joining us to discuss Kapow's work and upcoming summit this weekend from April 9th to 10th. So, hey, Bianca, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks. I'm so excited to uh, to be here. Yeah. Um, so can you start off by telling us a little bit about Kapow? When did you form and why? And who is Kapow? Great question. Uh, so Kapow, as you said, stands for Casualised, Unemployed and Precarious University Workers. So we're a, co- a coalition of precarious uni workers. We formed about a year ago. Um, So lots of universities have casuals networks, which are autonomous organising groups of casual workers in universities. And Kapow basically gathers together members from those casual networks into like a mega network. So we're like a network of casuals networks. The reason we need to exist um, is that there are so many casuals in universities. So the Department of Education's own figures suggest that there might be around 100,000 casuals in universities and in some big unis where the majority of the workforce. um, In Victoria, almost three quarters of university workers are insecurely employed. So we have a situation in universities uh, where there's huge numbers of people who are exploited 
and they experience systemic wage theft. They have very little power in their own workplaces, in our own union, um, and indeed, like, over our own livelihoods. And we know, we all know that casualization is only getting worse and in higher ed, it's a slippery slope. It's getting so bad. And that the strategies we've used to fight it in the past just don't work. So, Kapow is basically a group of precarious uni workers trying to fix those problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work over the past year, um, in particular because of the COVID-19 pandemic hitting and the the effects that's had on the university sector. So I was wondering um, if we could turn to some of Kapow's main concerns about working, teaching and learning conditions in the current Australian higher ed landscape and how the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated some of these pre-existing issues in higher ed. Yeah, sure. I often joke, and perhaps I shouldn't, but I joke that academia is like a big pyramid scheme, right? So you've got this big group of people at the bottom who have not much power and are basically seen as disposable, but their labour holds up the rest of the system. So even without the pandemic, before the pandemic, we're already incredibly precarious. So to give you an example from teaching, um, because it's what I'm most familiar with. And and if some of your listeners have been in university settings, you'll have tutors, right? So if you tutor, um, your contract is 12 weeks. Um, So two semesters, that's 24 weeks, which is only half the year. And after your one semester contract, you don't know what's coming next. You don't know if you'll get work. And to do the work well, um, you have to do so many hours of work that your, your wage is actually possibly, and it has been for me, below minimum wage. Um, And in addition, like our lack of power and relative isolation in the workplace makes us targets for that wage theft, but also for harassment, for discrimination, for a huge amount of overwork and so on. So that's the situation we start with. And then the pandemic rolls on. um, And when that happens, because we're this army of precarious workers, we're the first to lose our jobs. We're not counted in redundancies, so we don't actually know how many casuals lost work. Um, it's at least in the thousands, and I, I would say I've thought about it a lot, and I'd say the number of people who have had severely reduced work or just no contracts altogether is likely in the tens of thousands. And on top of that, we were deliberately shut out of JobKeeper because the government doesn't like university workers. And those who did manage to get work and and are working at the moment. We've handled the transfer to teaching online using our own tech in our own homes. Many of us, of course, rent, um, et cetera. So there's all the things that come with that. Um, And there's been some pretty um, concerning safety issues, particularly at some universities in Victoria, casuals being asked to sanitise their own classrooms and police mask wearing with no training, no support, no extra pay. On top of that, we know that our own students are really struggling right now, right? Like many of them have lost casual work. The international students that we do have are incredibly isolated and many are paying a lot more for their arts degrees because of the recent changes to um, the funding. So it's a lot more difficult to look after our students to look after ourselves, let alone, like, do research. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, just to sort of chime in with that, I can absolutely relate as somebody who was teaching at a university last semester and just looking at how much, you know, my colleagues and also my students were struggling. It is just, mm. it's so dire at the moment. Um, yeah. But could you tell us a bit about Kapow's organizing over 2020 and early 2021 um, before we move on to talking about the summit? What have you been campaigning for so far? And could you share some of your wins or works in progress? Sure. So throughout this darkness, Kapow has been a shining beacon of light. Um, so we've run a few big gatherings online um, through the past year. Um, and we run like training sessions both in casuals networks and online, um, accessible to anyone on things like how to get elected to your union branch committee or how to get started in deep organising. Probably the most public win for a casuals network was the wage theft case at the University of Melbourne. So the casuals there really showed us that what's needed to win is this combination of organising the workers and then strategically mobilising them over a long period of time. Uh, we've had some media attention. We've done a lot of work to try to um, to get people to understand what it's like to work as a casual in a university. We've done some Senate committee stuff uh, and we've had some wins in our own union to get casuals on the national agenda. But honestly, for me, the biggest win has just been the solidarity of our weekly Zoom meetups. Um, being a casual uni worker is quite an alienating, alienating and isolating experience. Um, And it's really meant the world to me just to see a bunch of really brilliant people every week. And we're all sharing the ride together. And there's a lot of power in that, I think. Yeah, I love that because it can be such a lonely experience. You sort of come in, do your work and leave and you don't you're not really tethered to the university apart from this quite precarious contract. Um, Mm. So just touching on one of the things that you brought up in that previous response, I was wondering if you could briefly speak to the importance of raising issues of insecure, unpaid and exploitative working conditions in centres of higher ed as part of strengthening the work and structure of the broader National Tertiary Education Union, which I understand um, a lot of Kapow members are a part of, if not most of Kapow members. Yeah, absolutely. So... Like a lot of unions, the NTU, um, which is our union in universities, faces this enormous challenge of trying to organise casual workers. Um, in our union, we make up uh, only a small fraction of the union overall, but we make up most university workers. So there's, a, there's already a disparity there. Um, and the union has thus far represented the workers at the top of that pyramid pretty well, but for um, most of the wins for casuals over the past year or so in particular have been won by casuals organising together. So in Kapow, we're really convinced of the need for that autonomous organising. And we're trying to increase our power in our workplaces, but also in our union. Um, Basically, what we know is this, that for universities that exist for the public good, for that idea (laughs) to even continue to exist, let alone improve, we really need a fundamentally different mode of doing union work. We need a union that will radically democratise our universities, um, which requires enormous density and enormous participation, so much more than we're seeing right now. And we know that we're not going to win anything by asking nicely for management to stop screwing us over. Um, And we know, too, that we're not going to win by a few exhausted activists just rocking up to a rally once a term. So basically in Kapow, we are convinced and we talk about it nonstop (laughs) 
But after so much thinking about it, we, we just know that we have no alternative but to organise. And the stakes have truly never been higher. Like, if unis are going to survive and be the institutions that we need them to be, we need to bring everyone along. Um, and we know that the union needs to be the centre of that. Absolutely. And so with that, um, you know, with that in the background, can you tell us about uh, Kapow's Summit that's coming up this weekend, April 9th to 10th, which I understand is going to bring together casual workers across the higher education sector? What's on for the weekend and what are you hoping to achieve? We're so excited. Um, Basically, this came about because we were thinking about the year ahead. Uh, Universities are going into enterprise bargaining and there's heaps happening. And it occurred to us that like, Everyone knows that casualization is a problem. Everyone's talking about how much of a problem casualization is. But no one has really asked casuals what they want. So we were like, we'll do that. So our summit is called What Casuals Want. Um, The goal of it is to gather as many casuals as we can in the one online space to talk about what we want for the higher education sector and how we're going to get there. So over... um, Tomorrow and Saturday, we've got like two half days on Zoom. Uh, we've got a bunch of like really jam-packed sessions run for casuals by casuals. And we're aiming to find a common ground for campaigning on those issues, particularly around that 2021-22 enterprise bargaining round. So that's a particular point where we might be able to make some wins. We're going to share strategies for change with a really strong focus on local organising because we know that um, organising has to happen within our own work sites, within our own corridors before it can happen at any sort of big scale. Uh, We're going to try to strengthen and build capacity of that national network of casuals networks, kind of the network in network model. And finally, and I think most importantly, we're going to enact the kind of unionism that we want to see, which is active, democratic, and that centers the most vulnerable workers. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And I really encourage people who are casualized, precarious, or even unemployed university workers to get along to it. Um, So how can people finally find out more about Kapow and about the summit, including how to register? Thank you so much for the support. Um, So if you are casual, unemployed or fixed-term uni worker um, or precarious, please come along to the summit. We'd love to see you there. Um, It's open to one and all. You can register for the summit if you go to bit.ly slash B-U-P-U-W. That'll take you to a Zoom rego site. Um, If you're interested in us at all. Um, you can Google us. No one else has our acronym, which is handy. So just Google C-U-P-U-W. Um, you'll find our website, our Facebook, our Twitter. Our email address is C-U-P-U-W at protonmail.com. And it's also plastered all over those socials on the website. Um, we meet weekly Thursdays, 5 p.m. We might take next week off because we're all burned out. Um, But usually um, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, we all gather together on Zoom and and talk about what's happening on our campuses. And we'd love to see you there. We think of ourselves as a a fairly warm and inclusive bunch, um, and we're always really excited to see new people. Um, And we know that we can only win if we win together. So get involved. Come along. We'd love to meet you. 
Thank you so much, Bianca. Um, Yeah, once again, really encourage people to go and I really hope that it goes well. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And that was Bianca Hennessy, who's a unionist working with casualized, unemployed and precarious university workers in so-called Australia, or Kapow for short, who joined us to discuss Kapow's work and upcoming summit uh, tomorrow and Saturday, uh, which is for casualized, precarious and unemployed university workers. And I strongly encourage anybody who fits into those categories to get along to that Google Kapow and find out more. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. It's been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter. Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is right on 8 o'clock. And now I'm going to go to a conversation with Irene Solidis noyce who is the Secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, who's joining us to talk about recent extensions to transitional measures for Victorian renters affected by COVID-19, as well as changes to rental property standards in Victoria. So hi, Irene. Thanks for coming on the show. G'day, Priya. And uh, um, yeah, hi, everyone. Um, So maybe before we get stuck into talking about these changes, could you just remind listeners a bit about what Rahu does and sort of the core principles of your organising? Sure. Um, So Rahu Renters and Housing Union, we formed last year during the COVID-19 crisis out of the rent strike and um, we've been organising since around um, renters' rights, how we can stand up 
against, you know, unfair practices and um, how we can organise locally amongst ourselves as tenants and renters. Um, and we've, you know, seen some pretty amazing wins so far with um, the extensions to the moratorium all of last year. Um, and, yeah, our core principles are that everyone has a right to a home um, and that we have that safe and secure place to live, um, regardless of whether it's in public, community or private um, tenancies, yeah. Yeah, I can't see why anyone would disagree with that. Um, <laughs> so I know there have been recent changes to or an, an extension of transitional measures for renters in Victoria that were impacted by COVID-19 that have come into effect from the 29th of March to the 19th of June. So can you tell us a bit about what these changes entail? Yeah, for sure. It's great to hear you say that um, because it's been incredibly convoluted and complex around all of the different legislation coming out at the same time. Um, essentially, these transitional measures from the 29th of March to the 19th of June are intended to help folks who have been in debt, have been affected by COVID, um, and to, to make sure that they don't just get sent a notice to vacate immediately. Um, so what's been extended is basically the measures in, in the moratorium around um, if you had a COVID-19 reason that you wouldn't have a breach of duty. So, for example, if you couldn't pay rent, um, a notice to vacate is still invalid now if you couldn't pay rent last year or up to March 29 of this year. Um, you still won't have to pay lease break fees or rental debts uh, if you break a lease um, and landlords still can't apply for a warrant of possession, which is basically getting the cops to turn up at your house. Um, if you haven't... Uh, even if you have had an eviction granted at VCAT, they still can't apply for those warrants. So there are a few measures, including no blacklisting allowed if you've got COVID-19 grounds, um, that were extended from that moratorium. However, you know, it's a bit concerning because there are a lot of people who are still affected by COVID-19, who might not be covered by these extended measures. So we're doing our best to make sure that people can still challenge notices to vacate for whatever grounds they are, um, because we understand that people have been affected by COVID and are still being affected by it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, something that I wanted to, to sort of touch on is, we spoke with um, Jack, who's, an, who's a Rahu delegate, a couple of weeks ago about, uh, you know, sort of touching on issues with uh, the implementation of these changes as kind of stopgap measures, because there was a lot of anxiety about um, the end of the eviction moratorium, and then there was the temporary extension of that. So I was just wondering if you could speak to, um, you know, why it's concerning that these are sort of being rolled out at the last minute as stopgap measures. For sure. I think... Um Many of us were, yeah, really just shocked that it's always last minute when it comes to renters' rights um, from, you know, the government's way to address that. Um, I think from the very beginning of this pandemic, we were calling for a proper, broad catch a safety net um, around an, a, a truly wide eviction ban. Um, and I think the measures that the government have put through have been stopgap for sure. They've been um, 
last minute and they haven't fully addressed the wider net of people um, who are affected by COVID-19, who've been affected by rental debt, um, who might not have a formal lease. Um, so, yeah, they are stopgap measures and we, we still need to see the government address the wider issue of um, rental debt. Um, and, and we're still going to continue to demand that both the federal and state governments address that debt crisis by waiving rental debt from COVID-19. Um, and we'll keep, we'll keep fighting for that. But, yeah, in terms of um, what those stopgap measures have meant for a lot of people, um, we've done a report from a survey we, we conducted earlier this year for three months, and many of, many of our members and many renters more broadly reported that, you know, 50% of them are in debt, whether it's um, rental debt or not, and the effects of the moratorium didn't really address the fact that people still had to move out, um, were still in extreme stress. 34% um, of respondents didn't have enough money to cover food and medications. Um, so it's really worrying and it's a much larger issue than these stopgap measures have been able to address. So we'll continue to fight for cancelling debt and for actually ending evictions. Yeah, definitely. So there's definitely a need for a more comprehensive measure that really takes into account all of these concerns around rental insecurity, around debt, and also around, you know, things like shortages in public housing and, and loss of public housing stock. Um, so I just wanted to pivot to some recent changes to rental property standards in Victoria, which I believe mm. were rolled out um, last week, which has led to a rush or an anticipated rush to sell properties that aren't up to scratch. So what are Rahu's <laughs> views on this and how might this impact renters in Victoria? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, so the amended act, um, just for background, includes uh, minimum standards. It's got a, a, a bunch of really, really good legislation in there that's taken years and years and years to roll out. So we really do welcome those amendments, but they don't address, you know, the last year of a global pandemic. The minimum standards are really minimum standards. You know, they are basic standards that we've unfortunately become used to not living with, like having a working toilet, having energy efficient standards of heating, um, having locked doors. Uh, things like that that are just bare minimum. And we've seen, again, which happens pretty repeatedly, that landlords are up in arms and the real estate lobby are now saying that this will further exacerbate um, the crisis because they're going to have to sell. And I think it's, a, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's the same narrative that gets rolled out every time. Um, and the level of entitlement... Uh, that that we see from from landlords in the real estate lobby is is really is really just blatantly clear. If you're going to invest in a property and you're getting thousands and thousands of dollars from renters a month for that property, the bare minimum you could do is make sure that we can actually live in it safely. Um, so it does have implications potentially um, if we end up seeing further further housing get sold. Um, there's still over 600,000 vacant properties in Victoria alone and and yet there's no vacant land tax being paid on them at the moment. So we want to see that reintroduced from the government. And if landlords are wanting to sell these, these properties, um, maybe the Victorian government can look into actually acquiring them 
to, to deal with the fact that we don't have enough public housing, that we have over a 10-year waiting list, and that Victoria has the lowest amount of public housing investment in the country and some of the lowest in the world. That said, um, these individual properties' median price range are a million apiece. Um, so for the government to seriously look into this is to actually commit to using the public land available, using the vacant land available, and, and truly addressing the housing crisis. And it does need to have a federal um, a federal sort of backing for that too, I think. Yeah, it is just so challenging to, I guess, um, galvanise political will to um, divest from private property holders, um, you know, or like have, have that, having that share of the market rather than investing in public, um, public housing and making sure that everybody has, you know, a safe and livable space to live in. Um, so what can Rahu do to help people who may be experiencing challenging circumstances with their rental tenancies related to any of those changes that we discussed before? Yeah, well, every renter has a right to fight back and to challenge um, any unfair practices that we're all used to seeing. Um, with Rahu ourselves, we're there to make sure people know what our rights are, to make sure that we can fight together um, because it is a really um, big imbalance we're dealing with and being in a union is is absolutely about being stronger together in that fight. Um, a lot of what we're doing at the moment is helping people challenge rent increases. They're already coming through uh, and notices to vacate, whether they've been lodged correctly or not, we'll defend everyone against those evictions. Um, and if you want to get involved in, in that and you want to actually stand up against these kinds of notices that you might be getting, you can contact us at rahu.org.au. You can join up there. And, um, yeah, we, we can absolutely um, help with the fight against um, these evictions and, and unfair practices. I think one thing I just wanted to mention as well, back to the conversation around minimum standards, um, these at the same time that these, um, these protections are being rolled out, we're also having to face rental increases again. And when people have debt and now an increase and now the back to standard rent payment as well, it's just not enough. Um, and it's just not enough for that to, to, to be rolled out all at once. So for us, it's absolutely within our right to challenge those increases. The economy hasn't recovered and we sure as shit hasn't. haven't. Um, apologies for swearing, but it's just incredibly frustrating to see that we're going to be expected to pay another 20% on top of the debt, on top of the standard payments. And it does speak volumes that this is not just a housing crisis, this is a human crisis. This is a humanitarian problem where the right to a home hasn't been addressed and is left for the market to decide about. And we are absolutely against that. I mean, the, the, the human right to a home cannot and should not be dictated by a market. Um, and so, yeah, addressing that and having that fight is what we do in this union. Yeah. And I can't, you know, I can't commend the work that you do enough. It is just so, so important and will continue to be really important over the coming months as we see the impacts of, of this of these new minimum standards. Um, so thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me, Irene. Um, and I really encourage people to look up the Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, and um, find out more information. Join up if you can and just follow their work. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me, Priya and the Thursday Brekkie team. And that was a conversation with Irene Salidis noyce who's the secretary of the Renters and Housing Union and who spoke with us about recent extensions to transitional measures for Victorian um, renters affected by COVID-19, as well as changes to rental property standards. You're on Thursday breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to go to a track. This is Fly by Birds and Nairi. Spirit of my flow, yeah, I know they're still around when they talk to me like, what you doing with your life? Hold that head up high. And when the time come, I'll be there rolling with the pride of a lion. And I never let another man tell me who I am. Never cared to break bread with the liars. I'm well aware that they dead. That was Fly by Birds and Nairi. And now we're going to go to a uh, a clip of a speech from Lawrence, uh, who's a member of Anakbayan Melbourne, who read out a statement from Bahaghari, which is an anti-imperialist Filipino LGBTQ plus organization calling for justice for Melody Polan Bruno, who is a 25-year-old Filipina trans woman who died in 2019 in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, at the hands of a member of the Royal Australian Air Force. Now, I just want to add a content warning here because this uh, this little bit of a speech contains references to transphobic violence and death. So for listeners who um, are uncomfortable with hearing this, this will be for the next five minutes. Um, now we're going to invite um, Lawrence from Anakbayan, Melbourne, who's going to um, read the statement from Bahaghari, which is an LGBTQ organization in the Philippines. 
open letter from the Filipino LGBTQIA community to the Australian Embassy in the Philippines. Justice for Melody Bruno. It is no secret that transgender individuals face prejudice, hatred, and gender-based violence in the form of physical abuse, sexual exploitation, and denial of social justice, most especially by their own leaders and government. It is in this spirit that we, the Filipino LGBTQ+, highlight the, deni the blatant denial of justice for our trans woman sister, Melody Bruno. Melody was a 25-year-old call center worker from the Philippines. With humble beginnings, Melody was the breadwinner of her former family in Surigao del Sur. She visited Australia on July 2019 and formed a relationship with former Royal Australian Air Force Corporal Rian Toyer. However, only a week before she was due to return home, Melody's family was alerted by the sudden loss of contact. As it turns out, in September of 2019, Melody was killed by Toyer. According to Toyer's testimony, Melody's death was nothing more than an accident. Melody had supposedly fallen unconscious and died after, as Toyer claims, a consensual act of erotic asphyxiation. It is of note that Melody's consent was never established, and yet, undue weight was given to the Australian soldier's testimony anyway. The Australian courts, through the NSW District Court Judge Gordon Love, issued a slap on the wrist, an intensive correction order for the offender. In other words, zero jail time for Rian Toyer. This was a blatant distortion of justice, as Australian law does not permit manslaughter offenders to go without jail time, thus forcing the judge to issue a resentencing on March 29, 2021. To the utter shock of the Filipino LGBTQIA community, however, the judge's sentence was absurd. 22 months of imprisonment, including 12 months of non-parole. Apparently, if an Australian soldier kills a trans woman Filipina, he can walk away scot-free after less than two years of jail time. Judge Gordon Love even appallingly stated that it was a matter of considerable regret that he could not prevent Toyer from serving jail time. It must be said that it is the same judge that had previously sentenced three young people of color to 7.5 years of imprisonment over a non-fatal incident. The same judge that now suddenly expresses grief over giving a killer two years of jail time for killing a Filipino trans woman. The sheer fact that one could perform minor violations and be jailed for far longer than if one admits to killing a trans woman speaks volumes on the value that the Australian government places on the lives of transgender women, most especially a Filipina trans woman. We, the Filipino LGBTQIA+, condemn the shamelessly cruel and unjust verdict by the Australian court. We will not cease in holding the Australian government to account until justice for Melody is served, beginning with a full murder conviction for Rian Toyer. We also raise our voices as a community to condemn the silence of the Duterte regime. Despite repeated cries for help by Melody Bruno's family to the Philippine government, Duterte has refused to take a principled stand and demand justice. It is not unknown to us that this silence may entail benefits to Duterte and his minions. After all, the Australian government has been a provider of military aid to the Duterte administration and took an active part in shaping its rabid counterinsurgency campaign by providing 
drafting advice and technical assistance for the anti-terrorism law. We are also aware that Australia has been most recently brandishing its political leverage to the Philippines through COVID-19 vaccine deals. We demand justice for our slain sister Melody Bruno and hold the Philippine and Australian governments to account for the continued denial of our justice, dignity, and humanity. Justice for Melody! Protect trans Filipinas! Labanan ang abuso! Thank you, La. That was Lawrence, a member of Anakbayan, Melbourne, who was reading out a statement from Bahaghari, which is an anti-imperialist Filipino LGBTQ plus organization calling for justice for Melody Polan Bruno. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855am. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. And we're coming up to the end of the Thursday Breakfast Show on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.23 in the morning. And I'll take you through some of what we discussed today. So first of all, we heard an interview that Rosie did earlier this week with Michaela Sahar, who joined us to discuss her essay, COVID Among the Palestinians, published in Arena Quarterly Number 5. Michaela is a Melbourne-based writer, poet, and researcher, and you can find her piece on arena.org.au slash COVID-among-the-Palestinians. And after that, we heard from Chris Sharinga from the Gungara Environment Center, or GECO, who joined us to give an update about Camp Aranandra, which is a blockade halting forest logging in East Gippsland. For more details about Camp Aranandra, you can visit Gecko's website at www.gecko.org.au. And the key politicians to call and email with your concerns about the forest logging are the Premier, Daniel Andrews, Minister for Energy and Environment and Climate Change, Lily D'Ambrosio, MP, and Minister for Regional Development and Minister for Agriculture, Marianne Thomas, who is also the Minister in Charge of Vic Forests. After that, I spoke with Bianca Hennessy, who's a unionist working with casualized, unemployed, and precarious university workers in so-called Australia, or Kapow for short, who spoke about Kapow's work and upcoming summit tomorrow and Saturday, which is for casualized, precarious, and unemployed university workers across Australia. And I really encourage you to Google Kapow, where you can find more information, including how to register. And Bianca is a casual academic and PhD candidate at the Australian National University. After that, I spoke with Irene Salidis Noyce, who's a unionist, uh, sorry, who's a secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, who spoke with us about recent extensions to the transitional measures for Victorian renters affected by COVID 19, as well as changes to rental property standards in Victoria that are in effect as of last week. And finally, I played a clip by, uh, of a speech by Lawrence, who's a member of Anakbayan, Melbourne, who was reading out a statement from Bahaghari, which is an anti-imperialist Filipino LGBTQ plus organization calling for justice for Melody Bruno. 
I also really strongly encourage people to attend the rally on Saturday to stop black deaths in custody, which is at 1 p.m. outside uh, on the steps of Parliament House if you're in Melbourne. And there are also uh, analogous rallies happening around the country. It is a national day of action. And there is also on Monday going to be an event um, which is hosted by Natsels, uh, which is discussing the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and is going to be facilitated by Latoya Rule, who is the sibling of Wayne Fella Morrison, who died in custody. And um, the, uh, the family of Wayne Fella Morrison has been keeping up that fight. And you may also be aware of the Dajua Foundation, which launched last weekend um, and is being spearheaded by April Day, who's the daughter of Tanya Louise Day, who died in Victoria Police custody um, a few years ago. So I also really encourage people to look up Dajua Foundation, D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A Foundation, to find out more information about their work and to please donate if you can. It's been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter. Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there. And that's all we've got time for today on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember, if you didn't catch any of the segments or you want to listen back, you can go to www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast to hear the podcast, which is going to be uploaded shortly after today's program. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. 
You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.